Back in 2002, when I was a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, I desperately wanted to write a profile of Vanilla Ice, the faded rapper. Why? I'm not really sure. But I pitched and pitched and pitched the saga of a one-time hip-hop superstar now competing in the hype-adrenaline world of motocross. I told my editor Ice was a hot prospect who hit crazy speeds and rode like a pro. So, all right, he said, go do it. I traveled to Florida and I met Vanilla Ice, a.k.a. Robert Van Winkle, outside the Fort Lauderdale Pepsi Air Dana Motocross Park. We sat in his car for about an hour, talking music, drugs, politics, favorite cities. It was fun. He was weird. Aliens were real in harvesting people. He stopped doing drugs, but he still drank a lot, and he smoked a good amount of pot. As for racing, I'm not actually sure he still raced. I just think he wanted someone to talk to. And the truth of the matter is, so did I. I wanted to talk to Vanilla Ice. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Aaliyah Swaby, public education and political reporter for the Texas Tribune, whose work on academic life during COVID has been downright awesome. This is episode number 191. Let's sling some yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. All right, Aaliyah, one of the great joys of doing this podcast, which is just something I do on the side, I don't make any money for it, it's not, I just am a journalism geek, and I love finding writers I've never heard of, writers I've never read. I mean, like, holy shit, this person's really great. And your freaking work is great. Like, this Thank you. So good. Now, I'm going to say, so I'm going to start, though, with an interesting one. I found a story you wrote. I'm going <laughs> way back in the time machine, okay? Okay. You were in college. Uh-huh. And you wrote, as I hoisted myself into the dumpster, I could tell, <laughs> by, the, I could tell by the bulging garbage bags inside that we were in luck. My guides for the night, two Yaleys who live off campus, you were at Yale, we're already tearing the bags apart in search of food to restock the refrigerator. At first, everything looked in- inedible. But when I began sorting through the bags, I quickly learned how to pick out the gems. Unbroken package items are, are usually safe. Meat is only good in winter when it's frozen, according to one of my guides. There's no such thing as too many eggs. Just throw out the broken ones. Apples, tomatoes, and other produce items with skins are okay. Depending on the level of damage, sushi is debatable. And you wrote this awesome, awesome I thought way above normal college level piece about people who dig through the garbage around Yale and eat out of the garbage and not because they even necessarily need it. They just eat out of garbage. And I was thinking your job now is so heavy. The topics are heavy. The weight seems heavy. Everything just seems super heavy. And here you are at Yale with this flowery creative and, you know, digging garbage figures. Do you miss the sort of levity of levity writing or is this always what you want it to do? I think so that I don't even remember how I got onto that story. I I'm pretty sure it was an assignment. I'm pretty sure that was when I was at the new journal, which is a long form magazine at Yale that I ended up uh, editing um, my last year there. And yeah, I think it was just an assignment. We had a meeting and I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to follow around a bunch of people digging through trash like late at night. (laughs) Um, I think I still get to do reporting that is 
like fun for me now, even though the context isn't light. Like I, um, I spent a little while, uh, sometime in the fall, uh, zooming into a third grade teacher's class and, you know, third graders are hilarious. (laughs) And so it still felt like, you know, I got the levity that I needed. Um, even though the the context is obviously the pandemic. Um, and I think that I, prefer to be doing work that feels useful to people in some way, you know, like obviously like lighter reporting can definitely be useful to people. But I think like, especially during the pandemic, like I've tried to do stories that really show people something they might not have seen otherwise because they're also like me working from home and like fine and, you know, not really able to, make the calls that I'm able to make or, or talk to people in the way that I'm able to talk to. As a so, reporter. so like gun to your head, you view your job much more as to inform than to entertain. Yes. Yeah. But I think that you can do both. And I try to make my work. Like, I, I think I still try and bring the, like the same level of like artistry to my writing, even when I'm writing about heavy topics, you know, in terms of the color and the description um, of what people are doing or what things look like, what things smell like, (laughs) you know, like, I think, I don't think that heavy things have to be boring. All right. Wait, before you actually there's some stories I want to dig into, but that's an interesting point. So I do feel like a lot of heavy stories are boring, Mm -hmm. not yours. I'm just saying in general, heavy stories. Um, how do you go about livening up or keeping a heavy story punchy when the subject, let's just say is, you know, a failing education system. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems really hard. Yeah. I think a lot of it for me is about finding the most local story. Like before I was at the Tribune, I was at a small hyperlocal paper called the New Haven Independent, which is where I really like learned a lot <laughs> about how to be a local reporter Um, And I still kind of think of myself as a local reporter, you know, like whenever I'm thinking about, okay, this pandemic is, uh, you know, resulting in terrible um, educational quality for a lot of kids. Like I want to find the kid, you know, I want to find the family, the teacher, the one classroom where I can tell that story from instead of telling the story, you know, I tell the story across the state, but I think you can do that in a lot of different ways. And some of them will get to people a lot more than others, you know, like I I think especially as everyone started writing about the pandemic all the time, everyone got so burnt out of reading about like sweeping stories of here, all of the terrible things going wrong. But I think if you hear about one day in one classroom and the way that a teacher is, you know, it's not all bad. Like there are teachers who are working really hard and being really innovative and how they're dealing with a really bad hand. Um, And I think that kind of story where it's not like all doom and gloom, but it's like, here's like a really nuanced story of a teacher who's actually like pretty like happy where she is, despite the fact that it's a pandemic around her, um, that will get people more, I think, than a story that's all bad and and really zoomed out. Is there a risk or a um, maybe a temptation on the part of a writer like stuff sucks right now? Like it's uh, my kids right now are literally downstairs in school on their computers. Like COVID is everywhere. It just sucks. Everything sucks. Is there a, um, does one have to be careful when they're, you know, cause I've been through this too. When you're quote, 
I'm going to find the positive. I'm going to find the positive and almost trying so hard to find the positive when there just isn't that much positive. You know what I mean? Like there's so much human gloom, let's find the positive, but maybe there's just not that much positive. Yeah. I don't think I'm not trying to find the pot. A lot of my stories are not like here is the success. A lot of my stories are about the, like the helpers, like here are the people who are like living their lives and trying to make it despite the fact that everything around them is terrible. And I think that those stories sometimes can be even more heart wrenching, you know, like the fact that the odds are against them and you can really see like in, in the long run, the kids that a lot of these teachers are teaching are definitely going to fall behind. You know, there's not enough resources and that's just the context where, and I'm not trying to sugarcoat that context, but I do think it's more realistic to paint a picture of people striving anyway, because that is how life works, right? Like people, it's not like, you know, vulnerable kids and and families are just kind of sitting there waiting to be helped. (laughs) It's like they're in community with each other and with their teachers trying to make the best of things in in whatever way that is. So you wrote a story, uh, January 13th. It's called Jordan's Story. That's a headline. Isolated, anxious, and failing online classes. An 11-year-old Texas boy considered suicide. And um, freaking story is outstanding. It's just great. Um, But great sounds like the wrong word because it's so freaking depressing. Yeah. Um, Your lead to the story is, one evening in early October, 11-year-old Jordan typed the following into a Google document. Give me 10 good reasons I shouldn't kill myself here. Share here. No reasons were listed. Those words set off a cascade of actions. Since Jordan was using a school-issued computer, the Frisco Independent School District's technology department flagged it for counselors. Jordan's mother, Candace, was notified by the counselor at Jordan's middle school the next morning before she left for work, who recommended she take him to get help. Uh, that morning, Candace took Jordan to Children's Medical Center in Plano, a Plano for a psychological evaluation, and at the doctor's recommendation, checked him into an inpatient psychiatric care at a hospital that takes kids aged 5 through 17. And the story is just heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love soup to nuts on stories. First of all, how did you find this story and how were you able to get both the mother and the kid to sort of open up and talk to you? So I have been just checking in with families that I meet through different ways throughout the pandemic. Um, this family, I'm pretty sure was one of those that reached out to me, um, just wanting to share how hard remote learning was, um, had seen that I had written a lot about the plans for that Texas was making to continue remote learning and to send kids back to school in person. And she was having a hard time figuring out what to do. Um, So I didn't end up, uh, you know, at that point, writing a story about her and her son but I interviewed them both. I asked to check in down the line. Um, and I just, you know, whenever I remembered as I was doing other reporting, I kind of checked in, had conversations with her, took notes, um, but didn't, you know, pull anything yet, you know, didn't try and, and write anything yet. And then uh, in October, when I checked in with her, it had been pretty hard to reach her for a bit. Um, I was wondering if there was something going on and she finally uh, answered my call um, the day after she ended up taking her son to inpatient psychiatric care. So the day after basically this, uh, this story starts. Um, And at that point we had built up enough trust um, because I was just checking in with her and just making sure she knew 
you know, I'm not going to write anything. I wouldn't write anything without telling you. Um, I'm just checking in and I will let you know about the, the process of the, of, you know, the, the publication process moving forward. So at that point I was able to say, Hey, I, I think that this is a story that I would love to tell. I think that a lot of other people are in this situation. Um, I don't think you're alone and I think it could help other people. And she agreed. Um, we spent a long time because, you know, that was in October. The story didn't publish until January. So we spent a long time between October and January, just figuring out the terms of, of me writing the story. Um, you know, she had, never talked to a reporter before is my understanding. So it was a lot of me explaining like, okay, well, like ideally I would have you on record. I do understand why you don't want to, if, especially if I don't have you on record, I would need document like extensive documentation um, of the things that you're talking to me about and the things that I can't get documentation on, I'm not going to include. Um, And so, you know, she like, dug through her emails and things like that. Like the lead, I was able to write exactly what uh, Jordan wrote in that Google document because she sent me what she got from the counselor. Um, And so, yeah, I just over time was able to build up enough to go to my editors with and say, hey, like I know we don't usually use pseudonyms. It's not ideal, but I think it's worth doing in this situation because the story is one that I haven't really seen and that we really need to tell. Are you at all, when she says, when the whole sort of naming situation comes up, is part of our job to try to convince them to use the name or in a circumstance like this, is that just a non-issue? I don't, I didn't think of my job as trying to get her to be named. I think I just wanted to explain that one, you know, it is not fully in my hands. If I can't get something that you're comfortable with, I'm just not going to publish it. I'm never going to just publish something, you know, that sensitive um, that you feel really uncomfortable with. Um, And then two, that like the purpose of journalism in naming people is so that we build trust uh, with our readers. And so readers, you know, believe us (laughs) when we're telling a story. Um, Just tell her that, you know, the the, the fact that I am not going to use a name at her request means that I need to tell people ex- exactly where every single thing came from and double check. And, um, you know, I didn't go to the school district with her name, but I confirmed the like the process um, of, yes, that is exactly what they would do if, you know, a kid wrote in a Google document that they were going to kill themselves, they would um their technology department would be the first line. And so, you know, her story really checked out in that way. I don't think it would have allowed me to really keep her trust if I forced her to, if I tried to force her to use her name. I didn't see necessarily that, you know, it's, it's not like I'm holding her accountable to, to anything except for obviously telling me the truth. And I was able to do that without using her name in the story, I think. It seems like, um, I mean, most outlets have a policy, a certain policy about naming, and I feel like there are always exceptions to the rules. Mm-hmm. This just seems like a very obvious exception to the yeah. rule. It's a suicide, you know, kid threatening suicide right. and the mom is devastated by it. Um, right. I'm interested, you wrote, um, a week later, she was checking him into the hospital. Candace gets close to tears when she thinks about this summer. She feels guilty that she didn't listen to Jordan and send him to school in person. 
I was keeping him home for my client's sake, but almost neglecting his, she said. He was nervous about going back, but he knew the uh, best in this situation. He knew best. Um, were you interviewing her via Zoom or Skype, or were you actually in person at a distance? Uh, no, we were just on, on the phone, um, never in person, yeah. Okay, so when you're interviewing someone about a, a topic this sensitive, and this is kind of a new normal for all of us interviewing people via Zoom. And it's, it's you know, obviously you'd rather do these interviews in person. Right. Um, I wonder, how do you feel like it affects the tone, the back and forth, the, the entire sort of interview process when you're working on something this emotional and this fraught um, and you're doing it from afar? Does it make it harder to do? I think one of my strengths as a reporter is building these kinds of relationships. Um, I'm known for spending hours on the phone with someone when another reporter maybe would have spent, you know, 15 minutes. Like I, I think that that sort of trust building um, is something that I've really worked on, on honing as a reporter. Um, It is obviously harder to do over the phone, but I think this story couldn't have been published any earlier than it was as a result. Like, I think the fact that we just talked so regularly and I was really transparent with her about the process made that kind of conversation easier um, when she, you know, felt really challenging things like guilt over her son being suicidal. Um, And I think I was also able to like, I think it can be hard as a reporter to know what level of like reporter to be versus like, you know, human <laughs> in some ways of like, you do have this relationship with the source, but it's, it's a complicated one, right? Like you're talking to them to include their story um, in, in the publication. Right. I think what I was able to get out of that conversation specifically is that other parents are going to be in the same situation and they needed resources. So that's when I decided, I think it was after that, that quote that you're talking about, that conversation that I decided that I needed to put together. um, The story came with a resource guide um, for Texas parents whose kids were in similar situations as Jordan was. Um, Yeah. And I think it really helps me think through how can I not just take, but also like give to um, parents like, like Candace were in that situation. I have to put more paper in my printer because my son is printing out his homework. Okay. <laughs> it's actually kind of a perfect. It's a perfect interruption for this interview. For this interview. Actually, it's so yeah. funny. I'm actually going to leave this in the podcast because it's so <laughs> based in 2021. You mentioned trust building and I actually, um, I didn't see this going there and I love when this place, this goes in different uh, sort of follows different limbs of a tree. When you're talking about someone like this who's going through incredible tragedy and you're also trying to have them trust you, what does that mean? Like, how do you, because you're saying it's more than just, I'm going to write a really good story. You're going to like the story. You're saying you can trust me with this important and personal information and I will do right by you. So what does that actually mean? How do you build trust with a subject like this? I think, especially for parents, like a lot of the people that I'm interviewing don't, it's not their job to know how journalism works, right? Like if I'm talking to a school superintendent, there's a difference of how I'm talking to them or how I'm talking to a politician, a state lawmaker, than how I'm talking to 
a, um, you know, a mom in this situation. Like, I think there's a lot more of a need to not assume that they actually know what the terms mean, like what on the record means, what off the record on background means. Um, There's, you can't assume that they know, you know, I always tell them that uh, local outlets can republish our, our things. And so I, I asked Candace actually, you know, are you sure that you want the story to move forward? I asked her every time we talked, um, how are you feeling about it now? You know, just so you know, this will be republished in other places. Now wait, what if she said, what if one day she's like, no, like then do you just let it go and move on? Or do you try to convince her subtly to come along for the story? I think we just would have, I would have had a bigger conversation with her about what she was worried about. See if there are ways that I could have addressed that, you know, like I didn't include the name of the school um, that Jordan went to in it because that would have made him more identifiable. Like there are ways in which depending on the actual concern, uh, there are ways to address it. If it got to the point that she was like, I actually changed my mind about the entire story altogether then yeah, I would have had to, to let it go. But I think there's a lot of in-between, especially if someone knows that you're not in it to get them or to... There it is, right there. Hello. <laughs> we're, really, we're literally talking about education, online education. <laughs> <laughs> I turned the camera just for that effect. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think she knew that what I was saying was true because throughout I had been really transparent about how everything worked. So she was never surprised um, when I said, you know, I would need to go to my editors for something or I couldn't do something or I, you know, would or wouldn't include something. Um, And I don't think when she read the story that she was surprised by the story. Um, You know, I didn't, I didn't share it with her or anything, but I did, run through, okay, I did include this detail. I didn't include the name of the school, you know, things like that. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, anything new. When you say you spend hours on the phone with someone, mm-hmm. are you just talk? you know, it could it be about, Oh, did you see, did you watch whatever Cobra Kai last night? Could it, is it, Oh, the weather, is it blah, blah, blah. Are, and are you recording? Are you just talking? Like what does hours on the phone mean with a subject? Um, with her, we just talked about her and her son's experience with virtual learning. There's a lot that happened in her life over that time that I didn't end up putting in the story, but was really useful for me to know. Uh, you know, I kind of, um, like I was interested in, there's been a lot of debate about remote learning in general and, and, you know, the, the ways in which, uh, Teachers have, you know, and especially teachers unions have tried to um, delay in-person learning until there's a vaccine um, or until it feels safer to them. I, I think one important thing that I learned from her is that there are a lot of parents who are just not really on one side or the other in that debate. You know, I think talking to Candace, she was like, yeah, I know that virtual learning works for some people. Um, it just doesn't work for my son. And so I'm making this decision for my son. Um, and I, I think that that was really 
useful for me to have talked to her about the the larger like political context to know that she was kind of aware of it, but it, it really didn't impact her day-to-day life. Like what impacted her day-to-day was her own experience with her own um, son who was in trouble. Before we continue with Two Writers Thinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son Emmett, who's super excited for January 20th. I need this nightmare to end. I understand. I'm just tired of what's happening these past years. I'm stressed. I'm exhausted. I'm fed up. Joe Biden. Joe Biden? Oh, that's fine. But I'm talking about 503-sports.com's new lineup of throwback jerseys and hats coming to the website on January 20th. There's also a new administration. That's nice, too. It's a really weird time, isn't it? Um, I just had a talk with my mom the other day. A cousin of mine took his kids to uh, to Disney World for a day, like last week. Mm-hmm. And my reaction was, are you fucking kidding? You, t- you took the kids to Disney World during a pandemic? Yeah. And she's like, she said to me, they have three kids and they're going absolutely insane and they needed to do something. It just seems like there are a lot of people who don't know what the hell to do and they're kind of mm-hmm. at their breaking point. Yeah, there are people who are stuck and don't trust they're like local state and federal governments to do anything about it. They feel like they're gathering information on their own and finding resources on their own. And it's terrible. But don't go, Leah, don't go to the Disney world. I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you wrote, um, so I'm reading the story and I'm just like fascinated and it's really interesting. And then there's this point where it's like a sledgehammer hits me in the face and it's, um, Candace sent Jordan to school in person Friday, October 16th. But soon after, she realized she had the classic symptoms of COVID-19, lack of taste and smell. She tested positive and pulled her son out of in-person school the following Tuesday. Then here we are back at the exact situation, she said, frustrated. Jordan had to wait 24 days to return to school, 10 days for Candace to isolate, and an additional 14 days to make sure he didn't contract the virus. In the meantime, he was still getting messages from teachers regularly that he wasn't completing lessons. Having missed days of school, he was even more behind. It was driving me fucking crazy. I told them, I said, you don't know, you know what? Leave us alone. If he fails, we'll redo this year, Candace said. His sanity and mine are at, and mine are at stake right now. I can't take it right now. I can't take all the calls and the emails and the text messages and him saying he's done it and him crying and hitting his head and them cutting off his meds and I can't get to him into a psychiatrist. I'm losing my shit and I'm trying to keep it together for him. I think, first of all, that's like three of the most powerful paragraphs I've probably read during this entire thing. And I was wondering, is there any, when you're writing the story, because I think I have an inclination oftentimes probably to, in a detrimental way to take the like, holy shit moment and stick it at the top of the story. You know, like the COVID test came back and she couldn't believe it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Is there, when you're, when you're writing on this and, and reporting on it, is there any temptation to do that? Or do you view this as a pretty linear approach to storytelling? I think for that story in particular, you needed to know all that she had been through for that moment to really pack a punch. It's a gut punch. That is yeah. a gut punch moment in that story. Right. And, and I don't, I don't know if it would have been as powerful up top. Um, I think, you know, I started not at the beginning of my relationship with Candace, but at the beginning of where I saw it as a story, right? Like when she told me, what had happened with, with Jordan. And I think that in itself, like it starts off kind of with a punch, you know, like when you're reading exactly what he wrote in the Google document, right? Um, that's heavy. And I think I knew that the part about COVID 
coming too soon after that wouldn't have been quite as as powerful as if you're like okay things are going to get better now and then you're like nope she she got covid because that's actually how it happened when i was talking to her um you know i I talked to her and her son uh, was in psychiatric care that then a couple of times later i talked to her and she was like yeah well actually you'll never believe what happened (laughs) and it kind of it felt that way to me when i was finding out about it i felt like i wanted to recreate that feeling for readers too I just want to say, I don't consider this story even one, one gazillionth of exploitative. I just want to put that out there before I ask the question. When you're working on stories involving kids and what they're going through, whether you're the username or not, do you worry or do you have to consider, am I exploiting this kid? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I think it would make me a bad reporter (laughs) to not consider that. Um, I feel like, Okay, so I have a lot of feelings about talking to kids and incorporating kids into stories. I think it's a really important thing to do. And I think people don't do it enough. I feel like people let their concerns about exploiting kids get in the way of actually being able to represent their opinions and feelings in in coverage of of education. I had a story uh, that went with a podcast, actually, that we did of a high school senior and her experience with virtual learning um, last, uh, I guess it came out in maybe November. And she really wanted to tell her story. She was failing a couple of classes. I asked her if she was sure that she wanted, you know, I could just write that she wasn't doing well. I didn't have to write that she was failing. Would this be Um, Isabel Suarez? Yes, Isabel Suarez, yeah. And she was just so powerful and and independent and smart and such a great kid to lead that story. And I think if I had decided for her that it was exploitative to have her lead that story or to have her voice talking about, you know, how she was doing in her classes, that would have been me like missing out on on something that I think really moved our coverage forward in an important way, you know, like prioritizing her voice. And she was someone who's taking care of her younger siblings during the day while her mom is at work. She has so much on her plate. You don't really understand the story of education until you understand what it is that she and other kids are going through. Um, I think the it can be exploitative if in the process you, again, are not transparent with them, don't give them autonomy to say, no, I don't want that in the story to take things back, you know, things that you might not do with other sources, um, especially people in power. I wouldn't say, yes, uh, you know, you didn't like that quote, so you can take it back with a kid. I definitely would and do often. It's interesting. I was thinking about this. So I, my career has mostly been as a sports writer mm-hmm. and I've hated every assignment I've ever had to do that involves interviewing a kid because I just <laughs> feel like, it's really hard to get quotes out of them. You know, you're covering sports and, oh, that, so what was the, you know, you ask about the game. Well, you know, it was really blah, blah, blah. And it's just kind of, you obviously interview a lot of kids. How do you get kids to open up and how do you get kids to sort of speak maybe beyond their age level? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're definitely not going to get polished quotes out of a lot of kids. Like that's true. And sometimes I end up, you know, paraphrasing or, or trying to like get around that somehow. Um, but I don't think it means you don't talk to them, <laughs> right? Like I still think that 
you get the context that you need from talking to kids. So I think a lot of it is about asking open-ended questions, um, you know, not like leading in, in one direction or the other. A yes or no um, question for a kid is a death now. Right. That. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then also kind of going where they want to go. Like a kid is not going to necessarily, um, you know, Isabel probably would have, and, and did, we did talk about some of the politics of school reopening and things like that. But I think, you have to think about it as what are they seeing every day and how are they experiencing it? If you talk about school reopening in the terms of, you know, school board meetings and state politics, like that's not going to get you very far. Whereas if you talk about it in terms of, you know, how much schoolwork do you have every day and how is, how does your teacher seem like, you know, things that they're seeing, they're seeing the stress that their teachers are experiencing they're experiencing that same stress. They're feeling overwhelmed with homework assignments. You have to know enough to get on their level and talk about it on that level. And I think it just makes the reporting a lot better. You know, like a lot of the stories that I've found have been because I've been talking to parents and students throughout the pandemic. Right. Um, I just want to say this, this story on Isabel Suarez the headline is, this high school senior plans to be the first in her family to attend college. She has to finish virtual school first. This story and your story on Jordan mm. put together, I mean, that's, it's as, like, if they don't nominate you for a million different <laughs> awards for those stories, it's just, it's a crime because it's freaking, <laughs> I just want to say, you're, the lead to this story is, uh, Isabel Suarez is working hard to get through senior year. For years, she has arrived at school before the first bell to get extra help or to work on projects with friends and crammed her schedule with activities like yearbook uh, photography and college preparation courses. The 18-year-old Pflugerville High School student plans to be the first person in her family to attend and graduate from college. She wants to study music theory and production, likely starting at Austin Community College before transferring to a four-year college. But a towering obstacle stands between Isabel and her next step, more than half a year of virtual high school during a pandemic that has touched everyone she knows. Isabel babysits two younger siblings while their mother is at work, on top of completing scholarship applications and homework assignments in between Zoom classes. She's failing a couple of classes, including one she must pass to graduate. Add that to missing out on early morning tutoring sessions and quality in-person time with her teachers, and Isabel sees a bigger challenge in meeting her goals. Isabel loves taking care of her siblings, but the additional responsibilities pile onto her already high mountain of tasks, bringing instability to each day. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's freaking heartbreaking and crushing and I do feel like we live in this world where a lot of people like, you know, I'm a suburban dad and I'm comfortable and I have my two kids and it's not great for them, but Mm. they're okay. They have computers, they have laptops that we can afford and they're taking their classes. And in the middle of the day, they'll have a hot chocolate and it's okay. You know? And I feel like there's this tendency for people who are comfortable to say, yeah, it's tough, but it's okay. It's not so bad. And these stories are just, why is it so important for you to tell this person's story? I mean, I think, so to start off, I do think that Isabel would say she's also okay. Like, I think the the funny thing is that this is what I was saying earlier about people striving despite what the circumstances are. Like, I think Isabel knows that there are other people who are in more dire situations than than she is. Um, But I do feel like her story is 
pretty common in that, you know, there are so many kids who have other responsibilities. Like they're not, they're not with an adult all day. Um, and so them failing classes is not something that should be entirely put on them. I think that the, um, the fact that she is such a like ambitious student and a, a kid who tries so hard, works so hard um, and has, you know, all throughout her life, the fact that she's failing classes means that there's something wrong with the system, right? It means that her school, the, the school board, the state, like someone and maybe everyone is doing a lot of things wrong if a student like her can't get through it, you know, despite all of the, the obstacles she has in being the first person to go to college, she should be one of those who is succeeding. Um, and I think that that telling her story really shows the systemic issues, even though it it is, it really does stay focused like in her home, right? Like the story doesn't go very far outside of that, but I think it tells you so much more than like a sweeping story would about here's what's happening all throughout the state. Do you get angry writing these stories? Yes, definitely. <laughs> and is there, is there a, do you need to contain, like, is there a way you, are you allowed to express your anger to 18 year old Isabel Suarez? Like, are you allowed to show her that you're kind of pissed off about her situation or does that cross a line you should not cross? I think I've been, I mean, I've written stories holding the state accountable for failing to prepare for remote learning, right? So like, I am able to say to her, like, here's the story I wrote, like, yes, I know what situation you're in and you're not alone. And here's why, like I've, I have been beat reporting throughout all of this. I saw the state, you know, not give out guidance to schools until the last minute. Like I, I know exactly why this is happening. Um, and so I think that allows me to be authoritative about fault without being just kind of blindly angry in a way that's unprofessional um, and allows me to, again, like build trust with her because she knows I'm not saying like, why are you failing, you know, in a way that's blaming her for it. It's sort of trying to figure out how she's doing in the midst of all of this. Like, I know you wouldn't say this to her. But to, let's say, Jordan's mom, are you allowed in a conversation to say to her, God, this system is such bullshit? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think so. Like, I think there's, if I can't say that to a mom whose kid considered suicide, you know, like, I just don't see, if I said, you know, yeah, the system is working perfectly, <laughs> you know, while you're in this situation. Yeah. I, I just don't really see how that would help. I might not say it in that tone, right? Like I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty measured um, and kind of like, I think if, if you heard me on the phone, I would sound more like a therapist than like someone who was like ranting. <laughs> I think you have the, you have the tone of a therapist. Yeah. You actually do. It's right. Wait, I'm, I'm fascinated by something. You, so you and I, were both New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a Jewish guy. You're African-American. Mm -hmm. We both went from New York. I started my career in Nashville, Tennessee. You're in Texas. Okay. So we both had these fish out of water experiences. Um, there's a story you wrote. 
I mean, I wanted to punch a freaking wall, but it's Texas Education Board approves new sex ed policy that does not cover LGBTQ students or consent. It's a, kind of a straight news story. Starting in 2022, seventh and eighth grade students in Texas will learn about forms of birth control beyond absence, but middle schoolers won't have to learn about the importance of consent or the definitions of gender identity and sexual orientation. And I just, again, I just want to freaking punch a wall, right? <laughs> and I didn't write this story, though. I just want to punch a wall. I don't know your politics. I'm not, I don't yeah. want to presume. Sure. Is it hard to write about things I'll take a stab. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, you mm-hmm. kind of just want to scream where <laughs> inside, you know, cause we all have beliefs. We all take our, we all have beliefs. Doesn't mean you have to write on them, but you have them where, you know, something is just awful. Yeah. How do you write about it without showing your cards or being right. biased? I think that I can be a good reporter. No, I think that it makes me a good reporter to also say, I know that trans people exist and should have rights, (laughs) you know, like I think that there are certain things where it's not really about being unbiased. It's about being truthful. And sometimes if people's version of the truth does not align with reality, you have to point that out. Um, I think Republicans in Texas have a lot, a long history of marginalizing transgender people. Um, And I don't remember, I think I'm pretty sure I put it in that story, you know, included a paragraph about their history with that. I have also written, I wrote a story before that vote happened where I interviewed um, trans kids about what they thought um, about those policies and, and what they wanted to see with those policies. So, yeah, I think, again, it's not so much about anger about my personal beliefs it's more so how can I be authoritative about what's gone wrong here and you know what the systemic issues are that are in play here my favorite uh thing you wrote here and it's not like there's any great like writing flourish here but you wrote Ruben Cortez a Brownsville Democrat unsuccessfully attempted to add language teaching middle school students about quote bullying and harassment because of sexual orientation and gender identity or expression like Yep. We can't even teach kids not to bully on it. It's mm-hmm. so taboo mm-hmm. that we can't even teach kids not to bully on this issue. Yeah. It has to. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's definitely frustrating. Is there a part of, is there a part of you that sort of digs reporting on a part of the country that you are not that familiar with? Like, even if you don't agree with maybe some of the stances or you think education is backwards or, I don't, I don't know, but is there something interesting and exciting about not being in New York or not being in Connecticut and being somewhere where you're kind of a fish out of water and this isn't how you were raised and it's just all new and all weird and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the hardest things, well, one of the hardest things was reporting statewide. Like I, I hadn't done that um, in Connecticut or in New York. Um, And I think that break, you know, if I was reporting in Austin I think it would be in some ways similar to having reported in New Haven, right? Like the in New Haven, everyone was a Democrat. And so you were holding people accountable in the same way. And, you know, I'm, I don't think one party has the like, you know, does everything 
right or wrong. Like I think there there's plenty of people to hold accountable in both parties. Um, But it is different reporting in a context where Republicans at the Capitol have so much of the power um, and decide so much of what's going on. I think it's easy to be accused of being partisan when no, it's, it's just that I'm holding powerful people accountable holding the people in charge accountable. Um, But it has been interesting. I mean, I've learned so much more than I would have if I just, you know, stayed a local reporter in New Haven or in New York and in a place where I did grow up and and understand the politics a bit more. Do you feel the impact of the kind of quote unquote fake news movement in that part? Like, have you been dismissed by people as, oh, I'm not going to talk to you, fake news, blah, blah, blah. Have you felt that or no? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of lawmakers at the state level who feel that way about about us. Um, But I do think that and I think there's there's clearly a lot of misinformation that um, Texas lawmakers and the attorney general have um, been circulating and responsible for for circulating during, you know, the riots during, you know, other like national events. Um, So. Yeah, I, I think it's it's probably I mean, it's probably happening even if you're in one of these, you know, more like liberal, less right wing places, too. I think that just the entire uh, industry has has changed and the way the tools that we need are, are different maybe than they would have been, um, you know, five years ago or something. Let me ask you a final question. I ask everyone this, but I'm usually asking sports writers. This, so I enjoy asking. <laughs> what is the maddest a subject has ever been to you or I give two choices, either the maddest the subject has ever been to you or the best confrontation story from your journalism career. So I had just recently, I reported on this uh, teacher who was teaching virtually. He was teaching from his classroom uh, outside of Houston. And I had gotten permission to write the story um, you know, some districts, I think, are harder to get through their, like, layers of communications and everything than others. But I got permission to, like, follow him on Zoom for a day during a class. Um, and it was not a negative story. He's a really good teacher, but it brought in the context of how hard it was to teach virtually during this time. He wasn't sure if his uh, students were learning or were listening to him all the time. Their videos were often off. Um, it was another one of, of, you know, like a person who was really trying in a really difficult situation. And I got a really long email afterwards from the communications person who called me a bad reporter, said that I should have like talked to them more about getting other examples of teachers. I think they wanted an, a chance to like, you know, show me around and and kind of curate my experience a little bit. But she sent me like two extremely long, like very personal <laughs> attacks on my like character, on my my like work, on my journalism, on my yeah, just kind of everything. Um, so I sent her a really like nice email. I like to be like really aggressively polite after those kinds of emails because it throws people off to just like thank them for their time, thank them for reading the story, <laughs> you know, um, say that I'm sorry that they're um, that they're upset and 
you know, that I felt like I did everything right in that situation. But yeah, that was probably in recent history. That's the maddest someone's been at me. <laughs> Wait, I just want to say there's no greater fire extinguisher than kindness. Oh yeah. It's just none. It is yep. the first instinct is to write the fuck you blah, 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 letter. <laughs> and then you're like, wait, I can actually win this by thanking mm-hmm. them for reading the story saying, I hear what you're saying. I understand, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's like you win, yeah. you win. That's true. Yeah. That's, awesome. <laughs> That's very good. Well played. Um, I just want to say you've come up, you've come a long way from digging through the garbage at Yale. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you're, uh, I, seriously. I, I, I'm so happy I've been exposed to your writing. I think you're great. I think what you're doing is important. And um, I really appreciate you for uh, doing this. Seriously, it means a lot. Yeah, thanks so much. I want to thank today's guest, Aaliyah Swaby, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Aaliyah on Twitter at Aaliyah Swaby and read her work at texastribune.org. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Slinging Yang, please consider giving me a nice review. It means a lot. Music is by the Dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.